Hey, welcome to the Student Ministry Podcast by Lifeway. I'm Ben Trueblood. The joy, as always, of being in the podcast with the one and only producer, Nathan. Yeah, good to see you, too. A little virtually, but we've been together a lot lately with some essential stuff. So shout out to all yeah. those folks that we've seen. That's right. Uh, Tennessee and Mississippi. Uh, we were in Laurel, Mississippi, home of the show Hometown on HGTV, which I was not I knew it was a thing, not as familiar with it, but cool place, great people all through Tennessee. And uh, just as a shout out to those and upcoming locations, we're about to be in Birmingham, Montgomery and Pensacola in a few weeks. And so if you are listening from those spots, you can uh, lifeway.com slash essentials, lifeway.com slash essentials. You come join us, hang out for a day. It is a great moment of training and community amongst other people who are in student ministry. So we love those. Nathan, do you have a specific memory from the Mississippi events? They were all good. We had good food along the way. So our participants got to have good food at both stops. That's always a plus, you know. So I didn't know anything about the the place we saw there in Laurel, but I do love woodworking. So it was a really cool wood shop to see. So, you know, that was fun. One thing I was surprised and then we'll uh, we'll get into the episode for today. Mississippi, more than the other locations we have been at, had more older youth pastors, like 50 years old and up. And I was super encouraged to see that people that had been in ministry in the same region, same community for 30, 40 years. That's a big deal. The one, the person they were calling the Bob father had been there. I think they said almost 40 years. I don't know. He he didn't seem as that old, like old enough to be doing student ministry for 40 years because I would have put it when he was two. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Shout out to Bob. So uh, we're thankful for those trips. Look for us in the future. Lifeway.com slash essentials. We'd love to hang out with you in person. I'm super excited about our conversation today. Our guest is Curtis Zachary, uh, known as CZ to many of you that are familiar with him. Uh, I'll tell, tell you a little bit about him and then we'll dive in. He's known for a contagious passion for the gospel, which defines the bounds of age, ethnicity, and religion. Whether teaching, speaking, or writing, CZ provides a biblical perspective that is raw, accessible, and relevant. He's the founder of Find Rest that you can find out more about at findrest.org and the author of Soul Rest. CZ is compelled by his calling to help spiritually depleted people discover the rest-filled reality that they're seen, heard, known, and loved through the finished work of Jesus. CZ studied ministry and theology at Liberty University and Gateway Seminary. He enjoys reading, running, exploring coffee and food spots around the country especially when accompanied by his wife, Monique, two sons, Noah and Micah. CZ, it's great to have you on the show, man. Thank you for making the time. Man, honored you would ask. I'm looking forward to the convo. So I want to start off. We're, we're going to explore a lot of different things. Um, we're going to get into the rest and spiritually depleted people part. I am really like I'm, I'm eager to dive in there, but I'm going to, I'm going to pause on that because I want to ask you about coffee first. Yeah. So you are an explorer of coffee shops. Is there one in particular that you're like, every time I'm in this city, I've got, I mean, Nashville has some great coffee spots, but when you, when you are outside of the city, somewhere else in the country, is there, a, is there a place you go every time? 
Man, yeah, it's uh, a lot of cities, honestly. I feel like it's an exhaustive list that uh, yeah. uh, probably couldn't dive in too much to for this conversation to not take up too much time. But yeah, we're very fortunate here in Nashville to have a beautiful, flourishing coffee culture. But I dig, I think what comes to mind, Messenger Coffee in uh, Kansas City is one that I really dig. Uh, okay. well, let me give you this caveat really quickly. There's a trifecta of things that make a special coffee shop. Obviously, the All coffee right. is number one. Uh, but then also the environment really sets the stage for what it's like to be there. And then the people uh, that are part of the uh, barista culture there, just the employees. So when they have all three, that's what makes it really special. So I think of, uh, yeah, Kansas City has a lot of cool coffee shops. Um, in Grand Rapids, there's one called Madcap that I think is really, really uh, nice. And then in California, I mean, it's just bottomless. I start thinking about all the different ones. But yeah, so let's not do coffee. It's too much. It's too, <laughs> I get too excited about it. It's just, it's That's cool. right. That's right. So at home, do you get into making it at home to like special ways or at home? Are you just like Folgers in a in a coffee or do you like you do it upright? Well, it's funny. I, I really appreciate good coffee, but I'm not a coffee snob. So I will drink coffee just because I enjoyed, you know, the taste of coffee. And interestingly enough for me, I don't really need coffee for the caffeine. So I don't need to have it. So it's not like this uh, dead set every single day, have to prepare coffee kind of thing. So I can be patient to either just have a good coffee later on. Uh, I do have a coffee maker at home that does like espresso, like a one-touch thing that was uh, – uh, a gift that we receive from family. But uh, yeah, I don't really get too hung up on it, but I just enjoy the whole thing. I love the taste of coffee, the experience of coffee. It's really connecting with people mostly that, that brings out yeah. the coffee for me. But yeah. That's cool. We, uh, uh, my wife found this subscription service called Cometeer mm. uh, and it's coffees from around the country and they like flash freeze them in the little, it looks like a K cup, but you don't put it in your right. Keurig and you boil the water and put it. And so that, that has been, we've been on that kick late. Cause it gives you, we can try coffees from all over. Yeah. The place. And it actually tastes really good too. <laughs> yeah, it does. It does. It works. Um, man, I want to start, uh, because I, I'm a, I'm a big believer in people's histories and backgrounds impacting the way that you think through experience ministry, experience people, experience the Lord, like your background, where you come from is a filter by which we encounter and engage in everything later in life. And uh, so I want to go back with you and I want to go back to New Jersey and, and learn about how you grew up, where you grew up. And then we can link those two, those experiences perhaps influencing later CZ in ministry and CZ in family and how you came to that soul rest kind of moment. So let's go all the way. Let's go all the way back to New Jersey. Yeah, um, it's interesting. I um, have a first blush answer um, to what that would all entail. Uh, even more recently for me, like even within the last four to six months, there's been some uh, more revelation about my childhood and kind of where, mm. uh, and how I grew up. Um, 
for that even to be purposeful, I'll just kind of go back to the beginning and then uh, we can kind of see how that bridges. But uh, yeah, I grew up in New Jersey. Uh, my parents were never married. So I went back and forth between my mom and my dad as a kid, uh, living between the two houses, visitations on the weekends kind of thing. Um, lived in a small township called South River where um, in New Jersey, everything is kind of structured in these little townships. So you have uh, a lot of familiarity, I think, with the people you grow up with and just the people you see all the time from when you're a kid all the way up into high school. So there's just a lot of um, just crossover into life and things like that. But, um, you know, just like any tight knit community that breeds a sense of uh, connectivity in some ways, but then also it's like uh, difficult to navigate just when you're around the same people all the time. And so yeah. uh, for me, what that really led to uh, from a very early age was uh, a real struggle with my identity. Uh, I'm biracial as well. So my mom is white, my dad is black. So uh, never really having a full understanding culturally uh, where mm. I fit uh, all the time. Uh, I had a lot of friends and a lot of places of resonance with different people from different walks of life for different reasons. And so in one way, it was a benefit because I felt like I was able to connect with a lot of different people across uh, races and interests and things like that. Uh, I was super into sports, but I also like to read and stuff. And so it was kind of like this weird amalgamation of different things. But uh, that externally was uh, kind of being a likable person that always really would be able to fit in wherever. Uh, internally, I feel like I was always uh, desperate for a sense of belonging, uh, desperate mm. for some sort of anchor uh, in my life. Uh, you know, economically, we were challenged as a family. So that was something that I felt very insecure about in different settings. Uh, like I said, not being light enough or dark enough for different settings, you know, with different friend groups was always in a place of insecurity. Um, so uh, all of those things just kind of led to um, some internal instability. And then I think with my family life and the things that kind of came with uh, the dynamic of my parents, but then also things that they had in their lives that were their own wrestles and struggles. And then things around our family, just uh, drugs and alcohol, things like that, that were kind of floating around, not only in our city, but then also just uh, specific to our our family, uh, had another layer of uh, mm. compounding interest <laughs> for me in regard yeah. to uh, trying to figure out all these internal wrestles. So uh, when I think back to my childhood, uh, that first blush answer that I told you I had is really one that says it's kind of a crazy childhood. You know, I, I didn't really have a lot of um, solidity or stability internally when it came to belonging and understanding family and connection and uh, even friendship and things like that. Um, uh, I think back to those times and uh, to be honest, I don't really remember a whole bunch about it. I think in some mm -hmm. ways, uh, I probably blocked out some things <laughs> that were yeah. kind of harder to experience from then, which uh, in one sense, you know, had always felt like uh, it was a kind of grace uh, to to have that experience. But then in another sense, and it's probably bridges uh, what I was saying a little bit earlier, 
there are parts of who I am that I think were kind of suppressed and um, I was unable to put my finger on simply because I didn't have those connective places. I didn't have that, that root system to be able to draw from to say, uh, here are the formational things that contributed to who I became as an adult. And so, um, yeah, it's kind of a, uh, a wide sweeping answer <laughs> to uh, going back to New Jersey, but I can allow you to go from there and ask <laughs> whatever you'd like. <laughs> yeah. So uh, growing up uh, was where did, what kind of part did church play? When did you, when did you first encounter going to church and first encounter the Lord? Yeah. So I was about eight years old, I think, when we started going to this one particular church. It was a Methodist church. Uh, my mom had found freedom from drinking uh, in that community. And um, I think that was part of what led us down that path. Um, kind of hazy on some of that, but I do remember um, being at that church and attending. And then uh, from there, we went to uh, another church that was more of a non-denominational kind of thing where they would teach the Bible and stuff like that. And um, it was always a place, I think, for my mom where she found a sense of belonging. She found Jesus and uh, definitely um, connected to who he was and what that meant for her life in a very real way. Mm -hmm. And so community, that church for her became kind of like a lifeblood. And so I accompanied her in a lot of those uh, trips. You know, I would go to youth group and hang out with kids. And, and I actually really appreciated it. I had a lot of friends and people who I knew through youth group that were very um, awesome to me. You know, like I said, I, I had a lot of struggles and wrestles with identity, but it felt like this church, which uh, was kind of just outside of the town where, where I live, um, it was a place to be able to go and experience um, life without any sort of expectations. There was no real sense of like who I needed to be. It was just come and be at this place, which is over here. And then, you know, people at church are nice. So like, you know, the kids were nice to me and, you know, I made a lot of friends. And so uh, church was something that was, um, I would say important to me, uh, but it wasn't important to where I would say I had a heart compulsion to follow the way of Jesus I would have said, if you asked me, uh, am I a Christian? Yes, 100%. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm team Jesus all the way. But I, I feel like um, the true heart capture <laughs> had not yet occurred, uh, even when I was attending church pretty regularly uh, through those grown-up years. So when did, that, when did that moment happen? When did it turn from, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian to, and this is, I'm going to follow this. Yeah. So it's going to kind of, I guess, jump the forward, the story forward a little bit. But uh, uh, so I, I grew up uh, kind of going to church, was definitely aware of who Jesus was, would have articulated that I was a Christian. Simultaneously, I was um, uh, really into sports. And so I played sports in high school. I was relatively decent. I was pretty much on track to go to college and play football. Uh, my senior year, I kind of had that TV movie story where I tore my ACL and my knee and mm. uh, all of the opportunities went away. And so uh, the trajectory I was on to go to college uh, to play football was kind of disrupted. Um, 
there was a project that we had in school where we had to apply to three colleges. Um, I think just because not a lot of people where I grew up were super interested in going to college. So one of the, the teachers really had a great idea to just make people their junior year have to apply just to go through the process. And yeah. uh, one of the times when I was at that church, uh, there was a table set up for Liberty University and um, they had no application fee. So I was like, yeah, there you go. <laughs> that one yeah. will be a part of the list. So we'll throw that into the little pile here. The other ones were football schools and, you know, whatever. So I uh, applied to Liberty, forgot all about it, didn't even think about it. Fast forward, I hurt my knee uh, my senior year. All of the places I was planning to go uh, decided against, you know, bringing me in. And then I was just going to go to a state school in New Jersey and just, you know, kind of, I was real apathetic about college, whatever. About two weeks before school started, this lady called me from Liberty and just said, hey, we still have a spot for you. I don't know if you're interested at all, but, you know, we'd love for you to come down to Virginia. And something about her saying Virginia was intriguing to me. It wasn't so much that it was like the Christian school or like what the place was, because I really didn't know a lot about it, honestly. I mean, I knew it yeah. was a Christian school, but I didn't know a lot of what that entailed. But the idea of leaving New Jersey kind of captured me. So once I kind of went down that road, uh, my mom uh, just kind of latched on to that because she heard Christian school. So she was like, get you out of here. Let's get you get you there. So we had to fill out student loans and all that stuff, whatever. Uh, so fast forward, uh, I ended up at Liberty. And it was interesting because, again, I would have articulated that I was a Christian um, and I was a follower of Jesus uh, but very quickly within my first year, I started to realize um, there were a lot of different perspectives and ways of engaging this whole idea of uh, saying that you're a Christian person or a Jesus follower. And uh, what I observed around me was just really fascinating around how people felt about their church attendance and their uh allegiance to Jesus or like what they would say about themselves and what they would do and how a lot of those things didn't really necessarily <laughs> coincide mm -hmm. together. And so, yeah. uh, yeah, so that kind of set me on a whole path of there at Liberty, um, kind of exploring what it meant to follow Jesus. And, um, without talking too much, I, I hate to <laughs> go too much no, on, on the thing. You're good, man. There's one story that comes to mind that was really pivotal for me to even start, you know, exploring for real. Uh, I was in my um, dorm uh, my freshman year. These two guys were um, about to fist fight. I mean, they were just like going at it, like full throated arguing and, you know, people kind of holding them back and, you know, that kind of thing. And it would escalate and then de-escalate just kind of and I walked down the hall and I just thought, man, these guys, I would have thought these two dudes were the nicest guys in the dorm before this conversation. And so I asked the guy, like, what's going on? You know, because you're in college, you could have been, you know, he stole my food out of the fridge or whatever, you know. <laughs> right. And he said, uh, well, this dude thinks you can lose your salvation and the other dude doesn't think you can. So <laughs> they were like going at it, man. I mean, like just full throated arguing and. You know, what's funny about that, obviously, is like the fact they were literally angry enough to fight, you know, about this right. is really kind of sad and disheartening. But for me, I remember that because I walked away from that thinking, 
I'm not really sure there's anything in my life that I feel strongly enough about to like mm. fight, you know, to, to be passionate, you know, let alone the Bible. Like what, what's, what could it possibly be that you would feel so passionate? And so it caused me to start reading the Bible for myself. And as I started reading mm. the Bible for myself, I started to look at life through different lenses and started to ask different questions. There wasn't a lot of imposed ideas about faith. It was really about me just kind of saying, who is this Jesus and what does this look like and what does it mean to know him? And when I started to do that, I was in my dorm. I wasn't at church. I wasn't at a thing. I was in my dorm and I was just like, man, what I started to realize about Jesus um, changed everything for me. And uh, as I was reading, I just said, man, if you're this dude, this is, this is who I want to follow. So that was it. Mm. What do you, what do you think it was in your situation in New Jersey that that was the spark of, man, I got to get out of here. I got to, I got to go to Virginia. Yeah. I feel like even now when I think back to New Jersey and I think back to my life, it's weird because, you know, I get glimpses and sparks of remembering good things. Like I remember friends. I remember, you know, like I said, I was really into sports and playing football. And like, I remember, um, you know, I had a really good friend who passed away. His name was Mike. Um, that we would hang out all the time. Like I remember like these little glimpses of good things um, in the midst of my growing up years from, from childhood all the way up to high school. Yeah. But to be completely honest, it's like, I just, even now think back and it's like this, this gray, dark, cold, um, lonely, uh, just memory. Uh, even, even now, you know, just, I think about what it was like, and just the types of situations that I was in regularly, maybe my family life and situation, just things that I'd saw and experienced. Like it was just, it was just not a place <laughs> that was burgeoning with life. And it was just very heavy. And I think mm. I wouldn't have had any of the language I have right now then if you asked me, you know, as a kid, why did I leave, right. you know, New Jersey? But, but when I think back, I'm like, man, it was just that. I think it was just, it was a place that, uh, for me in my situation and story, I just needed, I needed something different. And, um, and that's really what, what kind of led to it. It's interesting that there are, that you describe that time as more of a like season of feelings or darkness or coldness. Uh, I have my wife and I joke about this. She she remembers details of her elementary school years and like she can almost like walk you through like this is this is what happened in my life. And I can't do that. There are uh, I, I think maybe some similarities as I heard you talk of man I don't have I can remember specific moments, but there aren't a ton of memories from my early childhood childhood years. And I have not, uh, I've not done the work or thought about it in terms of, man, what would I, what kind of feelings would I put over that season instead of trying to remember specific, specific things. So that, that just struck me personally as an interesting way to, to view that and new kind of language. What I wonder what got you, what got you there to be able to evaluate that period of, of life in that way? Yeah, I think it's probably a 
confluence of a lot of different things. Um, I think the baseline reality is that suffering is the greatest of teachers. <laughs> I feel like mm -hmm. when we experience painful seasons and when we are able to, with a proper perspective, understand the significance of suffering, there is a huge benefit to what um, we can experience uh, through uh, learning and um, observation <laughs> when it comes to suffering. And I think um, when I started truly pursuing the way of Jesus uh, and moved beyond just the idea of Jesus as savior for um, an escape from hell and Jesus as um, uh, just an idea to embody uh, or influence the way you live on earth, but to really experience Jesus as like a rescuer, redeemer, like Jesus as a, mm. um, a healer. Uh, th those were things that were so different, <clears throat> different to me. And when that happened, it started to form and shape my worldview uh, in ways that allowed me to see purpose inside of uh, pain, <laughs> allowed me to see uh, there was uh, a plan that was uh, at play that maybe I wasn't fully aware of. And um, I say all of that just to kind of come back to, it's not really easy to put my finger on exactly what would be the thing that allowed me to see things in that way. But I do feel like um, even through my struggles and my own failures, understanding that there is um, a hope of redemption uh, connective to Jesus and that Jesus desires that we would have abundant life on earth. Like that to me was the game changer. It was a game changer for me to start following Jesus at the very beginning uh, in, in my dorm room. And it's yeah. been the game changer all along, even as I've learned and failed and struggled. It's um, the game changer verse was Colossians one, you know, you have verses 15 through 19, some of the most beautiful and articulate, you know, words about who Jesus is and what he's like. He's the image of the invisible God, firstborn over all creation, you know, all of this beautiful, uh, picture of who Jesus is. Uh, but at the end of that, it says, and God desires to reckon reconcile all things back to himself in heaven and on earth. And I remember reading that and went, wait, on earth? Like he actually wants to redeem and restore things here now? Like the only thing I'd only understood about Jesus was later on after you die. Like that's where the yeah. fullness of life comes. And so anyway, I, I just say all that to say, I think that's what has helped me to start to recognize that there is more than just salvation and hope for later on, but maybe there's uh, some sort of impact <laughs> that my life lived in New Jersey and the hard things that I've experienced have had not only positive influences, but really like have hindered me in a lot of ways as a human to experience the fullness of who Jesus is, you know? Yeah. 
You mentioned seeing Jesus as restorer, a rescuer, healer, like those specific things having tremendous impact. Was that something that you began to notice right away as you began to read through the scriptures for yourself? Or did those themes rise up later in your life and in kind of one of those light bulb moments that we have (laughs) throughout lifetime? I think, you know, there's more than one light bulb moment for us as believers. And so when did that happen? Did, did that shift later in life or was that something that you began to pick out right away? Yeah, I think it's relatively progressive. Like (laughs) I think I picked it up in a way uh, right away because when I had a real understanding of Jesus uh, and who he is and what he was like, the only hope that I had was he was a redeemer of my situation. Like he Mm. redeemed by his death, burial and resurrection, all that I had experienced in which I would have described as dark and hard and difficult. So like at least immediately there was a picture to say, this wasn't for nothing. Like God is redeeming and restoring this. He will use this. He will, build from this. So like there's this general sense of redeemer in the midst of like my story is now redeemed because of his blood. But I think as you were just alluding to, it's been over years in time and it's been over really hard experiences. It's been through life and through marriage and through having kids and through exploring my past and dealing with trauma and like all these different things to see, oh, okay. Like what I thought it meant to understand a redeemer pales in comparison to who I know him to be as redeemer and restorer. And then, like I said, that's relatively progressive because even that over time, you know, what I felt like was, well, you know, you, you think back to the times in your life when you were single before you were married, before you have kids and you go, man, like, you know, I I had times where I felt like I was really tired. <laughs> like, man, I was tired. <laughs> and then, like, you have kids and you're like, what? Like, I was never, I've never been tired in my life before now. <laughs> like, I had all, you know, so it's like everything is relative to your situation. You know, that's kind of a silly example. But it's like, in the same way, I feel like that about the redemption and the renewal and the restoration that comes from knowing Jesus. It's like, as you realize um what you've been rescued from, you will celebrate the rescuer even more. So, yeah, I think it's just, mm. and I, I think I'm still learning. <laughs> I'm still growing. Yeah. Yeah. I, my, the question that I was floating in my head is, and I think you just answered it with that. Le- the last statement is how do you talk to somebody who is struggling to grasp that my struggle wasn't for nothing? You know, like our audience is, is youth pastors, youth workers, mainly. Um, and there are personal struggle struggles there in, in the lives of, of, of youth pastors. Uh, personal struggles emotionally, personal struggles that, you know, there's fear of, man, this is a personal struggle that I don't know how to deal with because if I talk about it, then what does that mean? 
mean for ministry kind of stuff, personal struggles and families. And then similar to what, what you've articulated, growing up struggles and traumas that exist from, from that. And so how would you, as somebody who self admittedly is still learning along the way, but has also put a lot of time into this theme and have been living in it and growing in it. How do you, how do you talk to somebody who's not there yet about how their, their struggles aren't for nothing? Yeah, I think it's kind of uh multi-layered, just like everything else. You know, I think you just articulated um, some of the ways that, are important for us to distinguish uh, what our struggles are. You know, you kind of want to throw air quotes up there because it's all relative. Number one, uh, I think about how in the book of James says, um, count it joy when, when facing trials of various kinds or many kinds. Um, A lot of our emphasis when we talk about that verse um, and honestly, it's, pretty much out of context. I think a lot of times we say to people um, when we say count it joy when facing trials, what we're trying to say to them is you need to be happy while you're hurting. And so you have a hard thing going on. If you can't find a way to be happy in the middle of that, there's probably something wrong with your relationship with Jesus. So you need to figure out a way to kind of get to that point where you're able to smile through it, to have a good attitude. If you can't, Mm. then you're not counting it joy. Well, that's not what he was saying. (laughs) What he was saying is that there is an opportunity for us in the midst of our suffering to know that God is working in ways that we can't even see. God is doing things on our behalf that we're not even aware of. And the reason I know that is it goes on to say in James 1.4 that our suffering or our struggles make us complete, lacking nothing. So what it's basically saying is we can't become who we're going to become unless we experience the suffering, unless we experience these trials. And if that's really true, then there is a gift in suffering. That's not the most easy thing to write or say (laughs) because it feels disrespectful to someone who's walking through a difficult time, but somebody who is able to recognize on the other side of the recovery or through the process of uh, discovering difficult seasons or looking back toward the struggles or identifying the present struggles or seeing how people have introduced struggle into your life. When you're on the other side of that, you go, man, I see how I became a better person. I see who I am now as a result of what I've experienced. So I think that whole idea of the various kinds is important because, um, The other mistake I think we can make in looking at our story and going, man, like how could there be any good in my struggle is we uh, compare our sufferings to other people's. So therefore, Mm -hmm. uh, it will then either enhance or diminish our own story. So, for example, uh, we had a flood in our house uh, a few months back and it like ruined the floors upstairs and like water was coming down. It's like, man, but we got a place to live. We got somewhere to stay at night. Like there's going to be some work done. It's going to cost money and whatever, blah, blah, blah. But like it's a, it's a struggle. But then we hear, man, our friend just got a diagnosis about cancer and it's like not really looking good. And so their family's adapting and trying to figure like, so my immediate thought is to go, man, we're not suffering. 
that's suffering. That right there mm. is completely and totally the definition of suffering. What we're going through, man, that's, that's nothing. Well, I honestly think that's a mistake. Now, of course, the things are relative. And of course, my uh, compassion and my emphasis of thought is moved away from our stinking, you know, flooded house to our friend who's walking through this. But it would be a mistake for us to diminish the suffering of a kind that is present in our own situation. Because if I completely eradicate the fact that it's suffering, then I'm not able to benefit from what it says in verse four. I can't Mm. experience that suffering as something that helps to add to me becoming more complete, lacking nothing. Now there's going to be times where my suffering is way heavier than a flooded, you know, bathroom. But I think all of that is the great teacher. Suffering is a, is a great teacher to all of us. I hear you saying honor the suffering because of what, what it brings Mm. And, and making sure that you recognize it. It's okay to feel it. It's a, so I, I want to ask you, knowing that you've served on church staff. So you're somebody that can identify with much of our audience who church staff people have like, you've, you've been there, you've been in it. Um, did you go through a time where your view towards suffering was more slanted towards that? I just got to find a way to smile through it. I got to pull myself up by my Christian bootstraps, so to speak. And I've just, I've just got to power through. Did you, was there a time in your life where that was the spiritual view of, of suffering? Yeah. I would say that that was my view that was threaded through every single aspect of my life because hmm. uh, my identity was completely uh, connective to my function in ministry. So who I was, <laughs> was contingent upon what I did for God. And uh, my worth and my value uh, felt like they were completely connective to any sort of outcomes, um, any sort of uh, productivity when it comes to ministry work. And none of that was really even contingent upon people's view of me. It was really my own view of how God viewed me relative to what I was doing. So, uh, yeah, I mean, specifically to suffering, sure. Like, I think recognizing that there were places in my life that were really hard and were really um, uh, arduous, you know, but yet I had to keep that internal and suppressed because there were things on the outward um, that I needed to manage and navigate when it came to interacting with other people or uh, preaching and teaching or like, you know, leading a group or whatever. It's like, you know, those things needed to be uh, mutually exclusive. <laughs> you know, I can yeah. worry about suffering on my own time right now. I got to help other people, uh, know who Jesus is. How does keeping those things mutually exclusive, how is that harmful in the life of, of a pastor? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's just not real. <laughs> I mean, there doesn't need to be any fancy philosophical term. It's just not (laughs) true. (laughs) Um, I think that's where, you know, we so often find ourselves living disintegrated lives. Uh, It's really dangerous when we are not whole people 
and we are serving in ministry leadership because mm. we have convinced ourselves that the acumen and the ability and the knowledge, or we've convinced ourselves that, you know, just the heart and the compassion um, and the desire, uh, those things are enough, you know, and if we can just live from those places of functioning in successful ways in ministry, then uh, we'll be okay. But uh, when we're not drinking deeply of the thing that we are indeed uh, telling other people about, uh, it's not sustainable. Um, there's a quote from Soren Kierkegaard, which even every time I say it, like even when I'm about to say it right now, I don't want to say it to you because it continually convicts me over and over again. But he says it is absolutely unethical when one becomes so busy communicating that he forgets to be what he teaches. Mm. I think this is the thing that for a lot of us is a true reality that it goes unacknowledged because we don't feel like we have a safe place to talk about it. So I think a lot of the people who may even be listening to this conversation at the end of the day, know they are functioning and serving and are doing well in their ministry duties. But if you were to ask, how are you doing really internally? Many people I've found just in my work and in my conversation and forget all that, just in my own life, Many yeah. people have a disconnection where there is an ability to function and do well and actually succeed, maybe get promotions, maybe get more accolades. Maybe you're getting commendations. You're being asked to preach more. People are really enamored with who you are. And that's great. But internally, you're wrestling, wondering, you know, why don't I feel the things that I'm talking about? Why am I not uh, fully present at home? Why am I not? You know, so, yeah, I think that's that's why it's dangerous. Mm -hmm. Man, you have just described a season of my life to to a T. Uh, and it has it's taken and I, probably still a lot more work, but it's taken a lot of personal work for Jesus to rewire some things mm -hmm. and has used some some really important people in my life to kind of help me see what you articulated as the ministry success and the achievement being linked to my own view of how God views me, mm. man, that was mm. like a dagger to me because that has, there is, there's been season of my life where that's been the case where it was separate the pieces of life because what I'm experiencing and feeling over here in my personal life might hinder my ability to perform in my work ministry external life. And man, I can't do any, I can't allow anything to affect that because that is linked to is God giving me a pat on the back for, yeah. for what I'm performing over here. And man, that is for a long time. I, I thought, man, I'm the only one that's, I'm the only one that's seeing it this way. It must be really, messed up like why am i having this disintegrated as you put it piece of life and um it's both a sad thing and a comforting thing that as uh, through counseling and a lot of other stuff as i've discovered this that i've actually discovered more people that <laughs> that have 
maybe not exactly, but similarly walked through and, and you articulated again, the not an external pressure of, of success, but a, this is linked to how God views me. And so I need to be successful because I want God to view me really, really well. Yeah, man. And man, it's so, that's so damaging. It's so, it's so hard to walk through that. Yeah. I would even go further to say it's not simply just what we're succeeding in, in ministry, because some people may go, well, I'm not really too worried about that. You know, I don't really care what anybody says about whether or not I'm doing a great job. I'm not looking for anybody to give me any sort of pat on the back, that kind of thing. All I want to do is be faithful to God. You know, I just want to be somebody who honors and loves God with my life. Well, that's incredible. But then what is very dangerous if we're not careful is we begin to tell ourselves that um, our faithfulness to God and our desire to just be obedient to him then uh, precludes any opportunity for us to be healthy ourselves. (laughs) So then Mm -hmm. what ends up happening in another way is it's not about, you know, any sort of identity around what people perceive for you to be doing, but it's really just, man, I feel tired. I feel burned out. I feel like I don't have anything to give, but this is my calling and this is what God has told me to do. And if God is leading me to do this, then I need to forsake all other things. My health, my rest, even in some cases in a slippery slope, we would never say this on the surface, but my family becomes secondary to all these things. And so we then lie to ourselves with this you know, thread of truth, which is kind of woven in, which is we're supposed to spend ourselves for the kingdom of God. So spending yourself means that you exhaust all of your resources. All of those things are true to a point. (laughs) The point is, yes, we're supposed to spend ourselves, but there is a limitless resource that he is supplying us with to spend. (laughs) And if I'm not finding ways for me to be able to connect to this source of this limitless resource, (laughs) then I'm simply spending out of myself and I'm convincing myself that my exhaustion, my burnout, my depletion is completely something that is very spiritual. And I'm, Mm. I'm dying on the hill of ministry when in reality, God provides the very thing he requires. And I think if we don't stop and consider what it means for us to um, find that resource, then we will under the guise of uh, doing all of the good spiritual things, burn out, and then fall to the wayside. Yeah. So that I, I think is a good point to interject uh, your book called soul rest, the organization that you founded uh, findrest.org. Is this the journey, these kinds of things that led you to the place where it's like, man, I, I've got to help other people find the, I mean, the phrase that, that it's your website and what help spiritually depleted people discover the rest filled life. That's a yeah. powerful statement, man. Like that is that there, that is really, really strong because I think it, it hits where people are. There are spiritually depleted people. They're listening right now. There are people that if they're honest with themselves, they would say, 
I feel spiritually depleted and I don't know where to go because a pastor's not supposed to feel that way in air quotes, by the way. Yeah. Not in reality, but in yeah. air quotes. Yeah. So is, is, have we kind of been dancing around what led you to say, God's calling me to help other people discover what I'm discovering in my own journey with him? Yeah. Uh, well, let me just start out by saying um, I'm just a beggar trying to show other beggars where the bread is. <laughs> I have not yeah. achieved any sort of expertise. Um, even when I think about the fact that I wrote a book about this stuff, uh, <laughs> it's just almost laughable in some ways because I think, um, yeah, I just think Man, about I how it's something that has become very clear and true to me through experience and through learning. But I think until the day that I die, I will be aspiring toward experiencing this type of soul rest uh, in yeah. my life here on earth. And yeah, it's really important to say that at the outset. <laughs> I think that's, I think that's good though, because I think we have enough experts, quote experts saying things. And I, I feel, I feel really encouraged that, that your voice and somebody that's willing to say, Hey, I'm not an expert, but I know what I'm experiencing. And I think what I'm learning with Jesus is, is something to pass on to others. Man, I, I I think we're in a moment where maybe there is some expert fatigue and what people need is just a real person saying, hey, here's my life. If it's helpful, there it is. And so, I, man, I, I appreciate that very much and how you are walking through this. Man, thanks. I, I, I yeah, I feel like the thing that drives any of this, whether it's my role as a pastor in our local church here in town, or if it's, you know, having these kinds of conversations, it's an invitation to me. It's, it's not anything else except for a, you might want to come get in on this. Cause this is kind of good. Like I, I don't really see it any other way because um, whether it's talking about, the gospel and following the way of Jesus and moving from death to life and a hope that there can be more uh, to our lives than just what we experience in our own resource. Like that's an invitation. It's not something that is uh, data that I'm trying to distribute. There are not ideas I need people to understand uh, for the function of their minds. I, I want to invite somebody into an experience to say, man, this has changed my life. And, and so I think that that's really what it comes down to. Uh, my wife and I had moved to, we lived here in Tennessee and we moved to the Bay Area in California and uh, we were a part of a small church plant and it was, man, just a super meaningful time. And the type of work that we got to do every day was just exactly what we were hoping, you know, walking alongside homeless friends and we lived right next door to the church um, so we were able to be accessible to folks who uh, just needed to chat or in need, whatever. We were walking with people who were dealing with recovery uh, from addiction, people transitioning from prison into civilian life. And uh, man, every day was just like, you know, the types of uh, hands and feet stuff that we felt like was, you know, purposeful, meaningful work. Uh, yeah. The problem was in the midst of doing all that work, I very quickly started to feel some fatigue. 
And it's all these things that we've been talking about. You know, I was coming from this place of aspirational hope saying this is the kinds of stuff that will be honoring to the truth of scripture. But at the same time, feeling like, man, I'm not really sure I can keep doing this for much longer. And it was probably only a year, <laughs> you know, mm. and um, the discovery uh, for me is I knew that I was doing good work for God. Uh, I just wasn't doing that work with God. I was hmm. sustaining in my own strength. It was me and my own willpower, my own ingenuity, uh, my own drive, uh, my own focus, uh, my own dedication. And all of that was with good intentions because I'm a Christian dude and I love Jesus. And I mean all the things that I'm saying, uh, but yeah. it's uh, really just uh, Eugene Peterson said, how can I lead people beside the quiet, still waters if I'm in perpetual motion? And I think that's really where I started to recognize, like, man, I'm not drinking deeply of the same stuff that I'm telling everybody else is available. So I think for me, um, that began to be uh, some of the recognition to say something needs to change. Like, this is not going to work. Yeah. Once you got to that point and it was, okay, I've recognized there's a I'm not drinking deeply. What did you do from from there? What were some steps that you took to begin to drink deeply, to begin and, and recognizing the rest piece of this practices that you put into place, things to make sure that that was that that was happening? So I think it's uh, again, I, I keep using the word relative just because I know not everybody's story is exactly the same. Sure. Uh, for me, uh, the things that kind of really brought it to a head was what I just described coupled with my wife and I experienced two miscarriages within about a seven month period. And the second one was really physically and emotionally taxing. And then the third piece was I felt deathly alone. Like I was around a lot of people. Um, but anytime I would get to a point where I would share something that I was processing, uh, a lot of the feedback that I would receive was, well, you're the guy that we normally would talk to when we're in trouble. So uh, we'll just give you some space and maybe you can kind of work it out. Let us know <laughs> what's going on. You know? Yeah. And, you know, that, you know, sounds, you know, noble or whatever, but it's just like, man, how isolating. I just felt like I was on an island, you know. So right. uh, those three things converging just led to me and my step in that to tell the guys that I was serving alongside that I just needed to change something. I wasn't sure exactly what I was going to do. It ended up being now what I would articulate as a sabbatical. It was about a year long process um, where I just kind of stepped back from doing ministry, um, really kind of doing anything <laughs> in a lot of ways and just trusting the Lord was deeply dependent. Um, but that was the step for me. And, and what I would say is relative for each one of us is for me, it looked like this kind of dramatic um, removal of myself from the situation. It's not possible from everybody because everybody's like, man, I still got a job, I got, you know, whatever. Yeah. Uh, but the thing I would say is relative is what I learned on the very first day that God wanted me to explore. <laughs> it was uh, picked up my family. We moved uh, in with my wife's family and I was just there feeling defeated. Wasn't sure exactly what I was going to do had all these questions about identity and ministry and all that. I went outside that very first day and I felt like God said to me, now that I've taken away all the things that you get to do for me, will you love and worship me with the same passion? Mm 
And wow. very quickly and sadly, my answer was no. I knew it was mm-hmm. no. And he wasn't asking, do you love me? I would have said, yeah, like, of course, I love you, God. Yeah. But what he was saying is, is it the same for you when you don't get to do stuff? Like, am I enough for you? And I realized, I, no, I don't remember wow. what it's like for you to just be enough for me. So that's what I, quote unquote, did. I began to pursue what does it mean for God to be enough apart from work, from ministry, from function, from duty, from present, whatever. Is he enough? Wow. It almost sounds like he's taking you back to that dorm room all those years before and saying, here's your Bible. Here, here I am. Let's, let's walk through this. That's exactly right. And it's funny because, uh, like I said, (laughs) I'm still learning and I'm still growing. And I feel like the thing that I would even say now that is different from that first time when I started walking through, um, just discovering what it means to find rest for my soul is um, what I would articulate now as the importance of fully surrendering yourself to God. So not just discovering who he is and what he's like, but in light of that reality, actually opening yourself up fully and wholly to this God of the universe and I think part of why that articulation has become important is what I've discovered is many of us have not truly experienced repentance in our lives. I think a lot of us are very similar to me. I'll tell you my own story. I feel like in a lot of ways I have in my journey to follow Jesus identified sin and sin areas in my life that I've confessed to him. Lord, I don't want this to be true anymore. I feel deeply um, ashamed of certain things. I I recognize these certain struggles uh, help me to no longer uh, have that as a part of my life. I confess it to you. And what I love is in the scriptures, it tells us that he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin. And there is a freedom that comes from his forgiveness of sin. But one of the things that I have recognized more and more, even now, is there are parts of my life, though covered by the blood of Jesus, that I have not properly examined and explored in order to uproot the causal issues that flower into symptomatic sin. And I think for me, that has required some repentance. It's required for me to acknowledge that there are parts of my life that although I am forgiven, you know, in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, new has come. That was absolutely, back to what we were talking about earlier, redemptive. (laughs) I knew that God had redeemed me. But what I also needed (laughs) was somebody to say, you are forgiven of your sin. Everything you've done in the past is now absolved by the blood. But for you to walk in freedom here on earth, there are some things that you've experienced in your past that probably have had an effect on who you are as a person now. Maybe physiologically, maybe mentally, maybe emotionally, 
There are marks and there are scars. There are patterns. There are habits. There are ingrained realities that covered by the blood of Jesus, I am forgiven for. But (laughs) to find true rest, I need to come out of hiding. (laughs) To find true rest, I need to uncover what's under the surface so that whatever is contributing to these flowering sin issues, I no longer have to wrestle and struggle and be filled with anxiety and worry of whether or not this is coming back. But there's an opportunity to repent. And I would even go even further, you know, Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 talks about this ministry that he's been given, which is what all of your listeners are walking in. They're ministry leaders. Paul says, man, I received this ministry. And then he says in verse 2 of chapter 4, I renounce secret and shameful ways. And he goes on to say, it's so that there will never be a question about this ministry that I'm walking in. And what's crazy is like, man, for me, I don't know that I would have ever really saw it in those ways where it's like this beautiful opportunity to find rest, not only in the awareness in my mind that God has forgiven me of sin, but truly to experience the abundant life that he wants me to experience, removing some of these things that are impeding this flourishing. So how would you, how would you instruct people or advise people on that, on the root work and removing? Yeah, I think one of the biggest things that's been a benefit to me is Moving toward times where there is an intentional space to invite God in his presence by his spirit to continue to guide and direct us toward the things that may be impeding the flourishing in our lives. Like the things that, you know, I think about, you know, uh, I'm not at all a green thumb at all. So don't hear this as an expertise <laughs> in this way. It's just I'm learning as I'm observing and messing around in my backyard. But it's like, yeah. you know, there are certain times where, you know, I think about how there might be this big rock that is, you know, sitting in an area in your yard and it looks really nice, it's decorative, whatever. And you go to move that rock and you realize that there are things like growing underneath, <laughs> underneath the rock. And uh, it's interesting because the rock was on top of it. You would think nothing could grow under there. But when you remove the rock, there are like these weeds that are trying to pop up. So if you move that rock, those weeds are going to start to grow and they're going to start to really take, you know, life, you know, because now whatever was like impeding, whatever was trying to grow has been removed. And so uh, that is really awesome when it's something that you want there to grow. <laughs> like if it's a flower or something like that's, <laughs> that's <right>. great. <laughs> but if it's like a bunch of weeds, that's going to take over your garden. Like you don't want that. So now removing the rock does two things. It either shows you what has been suppressed that is supposed to grow <laughs> or removing the rock shows you what has been growing without you knowing that needs to be uprooted and thrown away. And I would just say, you know, without any, you know, deep, you know, expertise on the idea or any sort of clinical language, just simply saying, God, reveal to me where there is flourishing that's been impeded and where are there things growing <laughs> that I'm unaware of that need to be uprooted and removed. And I, I just honestly feel like if we just keep it 
all the way 100. <laughs> I think we know. <laughs> Some of us know, yeah. like our, as we're listening, we know. And, and to be real, maybe it's just the invitation to just go, hey, it's okay. <laughs> it's okay to admit the reality of there being things that need to be dealt with. And this will bring freedom. Mm. How much does having uh, like being intentional, carving out time and space influence the ability to move that rock and then see what's underneath and, and, and do the work that it takes underneath there. Yeah, man. Just keeping the same analogy. Um, man, there's stuff in my backyard that I've been wanting to do for a long time <laughs> and my wanting to do it is not going to do it. <laughs> so yeah. I actually have to stop in my schedule. And even though I know there's other things that are more important and things that I could be doing, I have to stop I have to go out and I have to move the rock. And I think that that's kind of what I would say about the spiritual disciplines as well. Is, uh, you know, there's really three words that I think are important when it comes to spiritual disciplines. It's intentional, substantial, and sustainable. First one, intentional, is just that, what you just asked. Like, we actually have to stop. And why that's important to say to ministry leaders is, Many of us fall under the lie that because we're around Christian stuff all the time, we're going to stumble into the things that we need for our souls. Like we're going to get enough somewhere from like either somebody else is preaching or I'm at church or when I say stuff like, no, I need to be intentional to go before God and say, I'm ready to receive you, whatever you want to give me. The second word substantial is really important because I think sometimes we can be intentional maybe we're all good at habits and maybe just because our job dictates it, we pray and we read the Bible and whatever, but substantial says, no, this isn't just a function. This is me showing up to whatever spiritual discipline and saying, when I get there, I want to meet God there. I think that's a completely different thing. And then the third one is sustainable. A lot of times, especially with ministry friends and people who are in ministry leadership, we make these grand commitments to go, man, you know what? Every day I'm going to do this for 60 minutes. Or I'm going to read this book and I'm going to go through this. I'm going to take notes and I'm going to meet with these people and I'm going to do this. Like, it's all great. And if you can do it, do it. But I think we need to stop and think, what is actually sustainable for the foreseeable future so that I don't burn out on me trying to do this thing in my own effort and then realize I'm back out not doing anything anymore. So I think those three things are really important. And it kind of goes with what you were asking about carving out the time. Yeah. Well, CZ, I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for the work that you're doing and, and helping people discover this. It is a, it's massively for me. I, I won't put this on, I won't assume on others, but for <laughs> me, this topic has been, has been something that's meant a great deal to me over the last few years and earlier in life, but specifically Recently, this has been an important thing, thing for me. So thank you for taking the time to pour into listeners of the podcast. And uh, I want to make sure uh, there are resources for you at findrest.org. Uh, if you want to dive a little bit more into this part of Curtis's ministry, of course, he speaks at student life camps and other things over the course of the summers and pastors locally, like all those all those things, but this particular part of his ministry is found at findrest.org and the book is called Soul Rest. So CZ, thank you again, man. I really appreciate you carving out the time. Man, you got it. This has been another episode of the Student Ministry Podcast. My life way. We'll see you next time, everybody.